Hello and welcome back to Waking Up With Mel. This is episode 31 and today we are going to wake up to Billy Shears, the unknown Beatle. Before we get into the conspiracy of Billy Shears and Paul McCartney and the death that may or may not have happened in 1966, leading to the replacement of Paul McCartney with this Billy Shears lookalike. We're just going to talk about Billy Shears, who he is, who he was supposedly. Um, you know, he's probably still alive and kicking as Paul McCartney as we know it. But I'm going to be teaching you and reading you a lot out of a book I bought years ago. And it's called The Memoirs of Billy Shears. And it is ghost written by this guy named Thomas E-U-H-A-R-R-I-E-T and um, it is a very very interesting book and it says a most special thanks to Sir J. Paul McCartney for providing such fantastic material so yeah um, regarding song authorship actual song authorship is to be understood by its historical context each song from before 1966, The Death of Paul McCartney, that, that this historical fiction book is written by the protagonist was written by Billy Shepard or Vivian Stanshaw, as it indicated in the text. All of the Beatles songs said herein to be written by the protagonist are by Lennon McCartney, at, at least officially. And that's an... Um, quotes post Beatles songs said to be released by the protagonist as of 2009 are by the current J Paul McCartney all non-release songs as of 2009 that are first appearing in the memories of Billy Shears are credited to Billy Shears so I truly believe that the real person alive right now who walks around as Paul McCartney is not Paul McCartney it's Billy Shears and I believe that Billy Shears wrote this book to leave behind when he dies the truth um, and the world has a hard time believing the truth even though as I just started this podcast with the Beatles song that was the first album that Billy Shears came out after Paul McCartney died in a car crash and they sing about Paul McCartney's car crash um, they sing about all of it in the lonely heart club band because they were sad and lonely as he tells us in this book um and it was really hard as he writes that for his best friend john lennon's best friend paul mccartney to be dead and him pretending he's not dead it was very hard on him and there's a chapter in this book where it talks about his assassination and i'm going to read that but first i'm going to play you guys um this clip of the song about talking about the wreck that Paul McCartney got in. Now the story goes, they were recording. He got mad about something, drove off in his convertible, didn't ran a light, uh, got, I believe decapitated or something like that, where people were standing around staring at him and they didn't really realize it was him. And they were just at the peak of their career. And they decided instead of, you know, saying, hey, Beatles is over, Paul's dead. They decided to bring on this lookalike, Billy Shears, who had won a lookalike contest. 
And he was also um, right-handed. Paul McCartney was left. So there was a lot of things going on. Um, he had to get plastic surgery, like a lot of stuff. He had to take over Paul's life, um, which was a huge problem, which I'm going to read a little bit about that too. Um, so I, this, to me, was kind of like the first quote-unquote clone. Like Clones are more obvious now. People are not shocked by that fact. But to me, this was like the first clone. You know, a lot of celebrities have lookalikes that they put out in the public eye so they don't have to constantly be bombarded. And the Beatles were very much the same. They all had lookalikes so they could, you know, send them out in the public eye and they weren't bombarded by all these girls and all these fans. And uh, Billy Shears was the lookalike for Paul McCartney. And I'll play you the song and then I'll read you a more about Billy Shears, his life. Uh, before the Beatles, and then we'll get into this book. Yeah, buckle up, folks. If you don't believe in conspiracy theories, uh, I have to just tell you, they use that word to make you not think. This is such an easy thing once you start listening to their own music, their own clues, and you know, reading the book that Paul McCartney, quote-unquote, Billy Shears wrote. Um, I want to say in 2009. Now, this book was rather expensive, I bought it, I believe, on Amazon, but it's 66 unbridged chapters um, of all the books that set world records, the memoirs of Billy Shears, and it has the Illuminati I in the O of memoirs, and then it also has <clears throat> this writing, this code writing that's in caps, so you can decode this book as well, which I started to do, and I didn't get very far actually I haven't even finished this book because it's so long um, but here we go Did you guys catch that? No one was really sure if he was from the house of Paul. This new Paul, he wants people to know. And they even have so many clues on the cover of the of the lonely Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. It's almost like they changed from the Beatles to this new band. And even, yeah, there's so many clues. I'll actually, let's talk about those clues real quick. Okay, I'm going to read this article. It is from August 6, 2013. It's called Paul is Dead, Clues on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. In the Paul is Dead mythology, if Abbey Road is a funeral procession, Sgt. Pepper Lonely Hearts Club Band is the burial. The Beatles had decided to stop touring and focus on experimenting with new sounds in the recording studio. It was Paul's idea that the Beatles immerse themselves in an alternative identity for this 1967 release. The name Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was a play on the verbose hippie-era band names, as Paul explained in the Beatles anthology. And then this is from that book, I guess. It was at the start of the hippie times and there were a jingly jangly happy aura around in America. I started thinking about what would 
be really mad name to call the band. At the time, there were lots of groups with the names like Laughing Joe and his medicine band or Cole Tucker's Medicinal Brew and Compound, all that odd Western going around on wagon stuff, long rambling names. And so in the same way that it was I Am the Walrus, John would throw together Choking Smokers and the Elementary Penguin. I threw those words together, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I took an idea... I took the idea back to the guys in London as, as we we were trying to get away f- from ourselves, to get away from touring and onto a more surreal thing. How about if we become an alter ego band, something like Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts? I got a little bit of song cooking with that title. The cover photo then shows the Beatles. Okay. So, um, this is now not from that book. The cover photo then shows the Beatles assuming this new identity and laying to rest their earlier image as the Fab Four. People looking for clues of Paul's death, however, interpreted uh, the cover of Sgt. Pepper as representing Paul's burial and the end of the Beatles as we had known them. With this iconic cover featuring so many images from the popular culture, Sgt. Pepper is rife with Paul's dead clues. The new psychedelic Beatles stand at the center while wax images of the younger Beatles look mournfully at the gravesite because the Beatles were no longer the same band. Looking at the older psychedelic Beatles, you'll notice a couple of odd things. While the rest of the Beatles are standing at an angle, Paul is facing the camera as though he were being supported by his bandmates standing at his sides. While the rest of the Beatles are holding brass band instruments, Paul's is black, a death as and wooden. And they put in a parentheses like a coffin and hand over Paul's head as though he were being blessed by a priest. And then I'm going to skip a little bit because it talks about strawberry fields and all this Jane Mansfield stuff, which is interesting, but I'm going to skip it because I'm going back to the album. So it says across the gravesite is a brass guitar oriented the way Paul, who was left handed, would play it. The strings of the instrument are made of sticks, but there are only three sticks rather than four just as there would only be three Beatles without Paul. With a little imagination, you can see that the yellow spell out Paul. So the yellow flowers spell out Paul. Hmm. Interesting. Um, or look at it the other way. The flowers f- uh, form P. Okay, this one's super interesting. So you take the drum where it says Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And you put it backwards, um, so put it in a mirror, and you will see um, I won, he died. So this image suggests the date of 11-9 or November 9th, 1966, that Paul died as the diamond between the word he and die points directly at Paul. One problem with this interpretation is that the British writes dates as day, month, year rather than American month day year which would make the september 11th rather than november 9th which is interesting too if you've ever heard my podcast about jesus's birthday which i believe is september 11th you could read this then as one 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 meaning that one of the four is gone and he die points to paul meaning the missing beetle the doll at the right side of the picture the cloth figure of shirley temple wears a sweater that reads welcome the rolling stones 
Joel Glazer asserts that the Rolling Stones, help, Rolling Stones helped cover up Paul's death and the reference of the cover was a thank you from the Beatles. Now, this is interesting. Now i got to read you something I just read in this book. Okay, so this is um, out of the book, The Memoirs of Billy Shear, written by, ghost written by this Thomas guy, spoken, he wrote the words of Sir Paul McCartney, a.k.a. Billy Shears. And uh, in this chapter 37, it's called Stone to Hell, We Called the Press. With the spiritual darkness felt in this chapter and the next, which I'm going to read you the next chapter too, not right in a row, but we'll get there, I realized I should explain why I agreed to include it. I want you to understand Satanism, aside from its spiritual effect or from its religious significance, is a political network used by this planet's most eminent social engineers. Now, if, you, if you're new here, that's basically what my whole podcast talks about and how these jerks control everything music everything and we're trying to change that right now in this in this great awakening and it's pretty cool to be alive right now but this book is old and he's let me actually let's talk how old is this book this was copy written in which year 2009 was the first copyright and then they've done updates up until 2016 so He's been telling us this stuff since 2009. This is how hard it is for people to understand truth or even want to believe it. Um, so anyways, it says, I want you to understand. Okay, we already got there. I do not endorse Satanism, but I've always accredited it, to it, accredited it in connection with those who made the Beatles the immortal band that it became at the top of the world governing body, which oversees the banks news media, and the most public opinion. There is an ambiguous organization who labor to use their global dominance to create the new world order. I hope that the included spiritual aspects do not cloud the issues of how and why Satanism is being used by the globalists. Intentionally, all, all such issues are so apparent in discussions of real world, real world affairs that rational people find them unthinkable. Until the public learns to let go of their fears of the subject, that they keep their fear in the power over them, and they will continue to energize that which they dread. Things we fear control us because we cannot intellectually deal with them. However absurd Satanism has infiltrated all of our major networks of media, commerce, politics, and religion, it collects and controls adherents nested within unsuspecting corporations, spreading its influence. It is well known that international bankers run the world's media, commerce, and politics. What is not readily understood is that the extensiveness of the Illuminati network, branching out in all directions on every front. Throughout the world, the vast network is not, is not about banking. That is just the funding source. The colossal network has always been about the power to control the masses and ultimately the entire world. Nearly everyone, regardless of their awareness of it, is in the network already through several lines of an influence, banking, entertainment, government, and major corporations. Satanism is merely one of the many long, thin threads. EMI, Electronic and Music Industries, LTD, 
is a British music company formed in March 1931, making big war profits in World War II. They made radar equipment and guided missile, uh, missiles, then later branched into broadcasting equipment, television cameras, and computers. In November 1931, that company made studios for recording and later remastered music. These recording studios, which we Beatles made imminent, are located at Abbey Road in St. John's Wood in the city of Westminster, a brow in the center of Great London. Work in the network was aided by EMI retained military intelligence. Surprise, surprise. Oscar Pressus, P-R-E-U-S-S, head of EMI Par Parlophone Records from 1950 through 55, had an assistant whom he trained under him who overtook when he died, and or retired, sorry, excuse me. The new leader, George Martin, whose past abode teacher was Jane Asher's mother, recorded classical and B-A-R-O-Q-U-E music. Bark? I've never heard of that. Maybe I have, but maybe I'm not saying it right. Big hit plays and some of the regional music from the British Isles. While the Beatles were performing in strip clubs over in Hamburg, their manager, Brian Epstein, at length convinced George Martin to consider recording them. George Martin said that the drummer, Pete, could not keep the beat and had him replaced. Even though George Harrison, following George Martin's order, had already hired a replacement, Ringo, who already had played a few times with them before. George Martin hired a new drummer to help with their recording sessions. Ringo showed up unaware of the redundancy and got to help out on the recording with tambourines, etc. Martin's assessment was that the band had extremely little talent, but quite likable personalities. He gave Brian orders to clean them up and make them look presentable and innocent. With Martin's help, they would turn their little songs into big hits. He would change parts, add piano, and do whatever it took to make the Beatles marketable. He was eventually known as the fifth Beatle for doing so much but was never actually a band member. Resisting getting cleaned up as well, when the Rolling Stones also got a recording contract, they each opted to pass themselves off as the Beatles' nasty rivals. It played perfectly into the hands of the secret committee of 300. As the snitch said, with the Beatles in their right hand and the Stones in their left hand, they would transform the whole world. Man, these fools, they sure just tell us, tell us in their music, they tell us in their books, they tell us in their movies, and we just sit here, stupid, dumb, ooh, and not even realizing they're telling us the truth. <laughs> and then we call it a conspiracy. It's a good time being alive, but 
you know, it's we're all called for something, and I'm called to just do this, and I and I like doing it. I love doing it, but it's crazy that we have to do it. That we've lived in such a crazy lie of a world. So I'm gonna go back to this book real quick. I'm gonna jump down to basically like the meat. You know, the media is controlled, and um, it says they took a special interest in these two bands. Uh, significant to represent us to the world in the most powerful media light. The Beatles and the Stones were distinct on our level of operation, but were used in concert by the powers that be for their own global purposes. We did not receive full detail plan, but we have heavy doors open for us. As long as each band worked within their guidelines that abruptly changed when I came along, everything played out perfectly. In the case of the Stones, who were essentially told to be evil devil worshippers, they were told that they more they were told that the more they could incite their audience to destroy all of the Stones' venues, the greater would be their hold on the world. They did their psycho their psychotic best to make fans go insanely berserk. For instance, in the U.S., they got their audience so worked up into a frenzy, vandalizing the Ed Sullivan set. That they swore they would never be invited back. With that, publicized endorsement, sales soared. John and George were especially close to the Stones. One day, when Mick was at the EMI studios, he overheard me talking to John and Ringo about some of Paul's assets. Mick became irritated with me. He told me that I, I am in my obsession on his new album and that I am obsessed with getting all Paul's nicest belongings. Then he's saying a little line, my obsession, your possession, every piece that I can get. He said, that's you bill all about taking everything that was Paul's. You tell us over and over again that your actions are all for Paul and that he's better off with you taking his place. But I don't think so. Then he's saying us, I don't mind if it's just unkind and it's not my property, but I want it just to be mine exclusively, unquote. He went on with other parts that also pointed to me. And then this is in quotes. How can you say that, unquote, I said. Paul wanted it this way, and I gave everything and practically everyone to save this band. It didn't cost the band one cent, just Paul's family and his heirs. Ringo said, it's only fair, you know. The new man may take the fortune. Ringo was quoted on the montage of Paul's death clues of I am the walrus. Before the final verse, just after the second line, they are, they are the Eggman, unquote. You can hear the new man may take the fortune. And I tried to hear it, guys, but I couldn't. Um, I tried like three times to listen to it. There is a bunch of mumbling going on, but I couldn't like pick it apart. You'd have to have like good equipment for that. Anyways, it says you would have to listen for it to catch it. It's in the background chatter. Okay, continuing on, it says, I had been told that Paul became a millionaire the year before. That was one of the reasons that I nabbed the job when it was offered. It was not to be preserve Beatle mania, but to suddenly be some great and wealthy superstar. It was a dream job for sure. I wanted the fame and fortune. For the sacrifice I made, I got his inheritance. I said to Mick, John did not object to me getting it. That's not the only one we have about you replacing Paul, Bill, Mick said. We all talked about 
about it over when we wrote something happened to me yesterday. Never call me Bill again, I said. I gave my whole life to be Paul. Tell him, John. Even in jest, John said. Never call him Bill. Okay, Billy boy, I told him. Something happened to me yesterday, Mick began to sing to me tauntingly. Something I can't speak of right away. He don't know if it's right or wrong. Maybe he should tell someone. He's not sure if against the law. Something's very strange, I hear you say. Very funny, I interrupted. Is that on your album? Oh, you're talking in a most peculiar way, he sang on. Laughing, John inserted the words, Not at all, like the Paul we knew. Most peculiar. Very funny, I repeated. This was not the only time that they combined against me. Are you ready? Let's hear it. else Mick sang to me then was a spontaneous and prompt version of the song. You don't know just where it's all gone. You don't really care at all. Now Billy is just not sure of what it was. What's it mean? What, what'd you cause? You cannot say it's right or it's wrong. Billy, you can tell someone. Now you're just unsure just what it was. Or if it's against the law, there's something more to pay for sins that you committed yesterday. Mick interrupted his own singing, stopped long enough to say, Yesterday, that's Paul's song of you. I knew. He's singing resumed again. It's oh so trippy. He interrupted his singing again. I got that line from Donovan. Shut up, I shouted. Is that on your album? What will you tell the press when they ask you to explain it all? Mick was getting personal with me, not merely writing about losing Paul. Don't worry, he said. I'll just tell them all to read Between the Buttons. Their Between the Buttons album, including those Paul songs, was the first album either band released after Paul died. Having those songs on the Stones album made us all the more bold to include Paul clues on my band's eagerly pursued Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album, which was released about five months later. On the Sgt. Pepper's cover, we acknowledged the Rolling Stones' awareness of us replacing Paul and including them for more clues. Paul was written in the, and how do you, this is a flower, hi, some of you are going to be like, Melody, come on, H-Y-A-C-I-N-T-H arrangement as Paul's bass guitar, aside from the word stereo added later was the only word on the album front cover aside from the Beatles. Also in Flowers on the Ground, since the band died with him, the name on the album, as if our new band, and on the Shirley Temple shirt, welcome the Rolling Stones and the good guys. It would have been impossible to keep it from them. They knew Paul too well. It affected them terribly. Not one of them were quite the same after it. At first, they were all skeptical of my abilities to do it convincibly. They thought this gig would be too big for me and nobody. But when we released Sgt. Pepper's 
they all confessed, saying that I had nothing to worry about. I was a better Paul and was getting better all the time. They could hardly believe it. It blew them all away. It blew the whole world away. Sergeant Peppers was far beyond every measure of any Beatles album that had gone before. It was far beyond anything the band had made before. The excellence of that album showed everyone that I was a good replacement. Most Rolling Stones fans noticed their change, too, but had no clue what provoked it. How on earth could they possibly know? We did not let the cat out of the bag for years yet. We loaded our records with clues for years before we finally helped the public understand them. No one seemed to see even the most obvious clue. Whenever Mick, Keith, or Brian saw me, they tested me, asked me questions to see how far I could be Paul. They asked me about my childhood, relatives, house, parents, cars, Jane, and jobs, everything they could think of. When they had asked me something above and beyond what I already knew, if the right answer did not pop into my head, they would make up a new history that I often convinced them was, was right anyway. I became quick at making up good stories that they could not argue with. It was a game, really, it, and I was quite good at it. We wrote about Paul's death, but I, the living Paul, called all the shots creating all the mystery, material, or power to drive the band up in excellence. My contract had opened new potentials and success that drove the Stones crazy. They were astonished by my understanding of Paul's inner workings. When John, George to John and George told Brian Jones about some of my better lucid dreams of Paul and about how he had instructed me, Brian just about went crazy. He did not waste any time at all. He convinced all the rest of their bands that they needed to needed a muse from heaven or hell who could do for them what Paul was doing for the Beatles through me. As we were finishing Sgt. Pepper's, the Stones were working on their flower album. Theirs was, theirs was very obviously tied to ours, even their Paul art. Our cover had the Beatles and Paul and flowers. On theirs, the entire band was shown as if they were flowers. And Brian told me those flowers were their gift for Paul. It represented the flowers, which were merely themselves, that they were sending to Paul's funeral, making flowers a perfect farewell gift to Paul. It contained goodbye songs to him. The album was truly outstanding offering, released the same month as our funeral album, Sgt. Pepper's. Good songs were included on flowers. I thought it was one of their better albums. By this time... It was the second nature for Keith and Mick to mix lyrics and messages in the same fashion that we needed to do to be able to say it all without anyone hearing it. They too created more songs with Paul enriched lyrics, lots of them. Each had its own story as well, but were stronger songs from having his death on their minds. The Stones were close friends of Paul's who had all heard him complain about dreams of his demise and a replacement. When it happened, and the remains of Paul were buried, and me taking over the position, it seriously spooked all of them. They were traumatized by it. But since Paul did not belong to their band, all their substantial Paul enrichments had to be much more discreet. Here are some of the Jagger Richard lyrics from Flowers. See if you can adjust your thinking about each of these songs well enough to recognize who these two writers were thinking about while also being aware of each song's official storylines. These first lines are from Ruby Tuesday. Officially, it's a love song of a girl who, 
a girl not to be wed, I will translate. The new Paul would never say where he came from yesterday. The old Paul don't matter if he's gone. While the sun is bright when Paul was alive, or in the darkest night when his life ended, no one knows the difference. No one can tell when Paul comes and the other goes. Although no one knew the stones were an exception, being given all the news and being left out of nothing, they knew that I came and that Paul went. They sent goodbye, Ruby Tuesday. Later, John sang Stupid Bloody Tuesday, referring to that same awful Ruby Bloody Tuesday that John told them about being the day he learned of Paul's death. Although Paul had died the Sunday before his death did not become a reality to John, until the tormenting telegram he received on Tuesday. An awareness of it hit John on Bloody Tuesday. Besides referring to Paul's blood, bloody is one of the one of the favorite swear words of Great Britain. John used it as an explicit in describing the day to Mick. Every new day, myself and impersonators got his name, but who could hang the name on Paul? Absolutely no one. With every new day, every replacement of yesterday, there would be the change from old Paul to the new. But when Paul evolves with every new day, still the stones have their fillings for the old Paul. They say, still I'm going to miss you, even though he would go on through this change from old Paul to new Paul. It is no slight against me that they still miss their friend. Don't question why Paul needs to be so free, free as a bird. Or in other words, don't ask why old Paul must die. It's the only way to be. It's the only way to continue to exist as Paul was, by substitution. I couldn't give him a life as I did until he was set free. Creating a proxy Paul is the next best thing to being Paul. He had gone as far as he could. To gain it all, Paul had to be freed from mortality. He just can't be chained to life where nothing is gained and nothing lost at such a cost. Our urgency comes from Paul. There's no time to lose, I heard Paul say and sing. It's not until after Paul died that his words, life is very short, that there's no time or taken so seriously. He got alarmed about it long before any of the others believed him he was calling for preparations for his replacement he was telling his mates to work it out to catch their dreams and his before all of those dreams slipped away if they did not act then he would it would be too late the Beatles could never go on after Paul was publicly mourned 
keeping it urgent, Paul was dying all the time. For several months, he was regularly tormented by his dreams of dying. Paul was concerned that they would lose their dream of replacing him. It made him crazy. But the clever words, lose your dreams and you will lose your mind, had a double meaning. Paul would be dying all the time in dreams, mentally suffering for the remainder of his life. The frequent dreams would only stop by Paul's death in actuality. Paul would lose his mind, blown his mind out in a car, and only then finally stop dreaming of his death. Ain't life unkind? When Paul loses his dreams is when he would lose his life. Ultimately, the most amazing thing about Ruby Tuesday is that it also works so well as a sad love song. Although, as such, the phrase Ruby Tuesday makes no sense. It inspired us. The next song, Have You Seen Your Mother, Baby Standing in the Shadow, Mick showed us how to read it by inserting the word brother for mother. It's about brother Paul who is standing over us in the shadows in the spirit world and about, about me, another baby, appearing to take Paul's place. Until you can see this song is about being Paul standing in death's shadow, seeing me taking his girlfriend and his life. You cannot fully understand it. They intended to insult me when they sang, they have nots have tried to freeze you in ice. Mick felt that I, some poor have not, overstepped my place. That was a common complaint from him and from others as well. They thought it unfair that I would save him for myself, preserving Paul for my own gang, but it helped others too. Out of Time is a stone song that I recollect being about Paul losing control over me, but Keith now denies it. I recall it anyway. I remember when they wrote it, like their other songs, their lyrics were about other things as well, but many had meanings of Paul. Nonetheless, when they sang, you don't know what's going on, you've been away for far too long, was the only Paul who was out of touch, my baby, my poor disregarded baby. Paul was out of time and disregarded. Being too old-fashioned now, he's obsolete, replaced by me, the new and approved Paul. Paul thought his dream of saving his name and fame through me was clever. He gave up, he gave up his social world here in mortality and ran all of his interests from over there, but can't come back, and has to be first in line. Now he's out of time. It's too late, baby. His time is all used up. Now it's my hour. They all mourn that Paul is out of time now. They're, they're not mocking him for it. Read the lyrics if you don't know the song. Their ride on, baby, was their own response to Paul's I'm looking through you. When Paul sang it, he referred to himself dead, replaced by me. The Rolling Stones answered it. A smile on your face, but not in your eyes. You're looking through me. You don't feel it inside. Unless you knew that they understood Paul's song, you would never have recognized that one. Least favorite among the songs and the otherwise fine albums was Please Go Home. The message was that I did not have enough real affection for the prior Paul, that I should, should return to being William, and that I should not be collecting Paul's royalties for which I had not worked. It says in some early part of your days, you were told of the devious ways that you thought you would get without pay. Rude.
All right, so also on the cover of the new Beatles, from the old Paul to the new Paul, the Sergeant Pepper Lonely Hearts Club Beatles, they have a Satanist on there. And you might wonder why, you know. <laughs> well, I talked a little bit about why, but let's get deeper into this. So it goes, the Beatles and the Stones had all been studying religiously with Satanist Keith Kenneth Anger, Inger for several months before I came along. Both bands had entered into satanic compact, compacts and made pledges. My Paul channeling drove them in deeper. So no wonder he was having dreams of his death because he was being channeled with satanic lies that, you know, he believed and then he manifested. It really matters who you worship in life. Since I already had Paul, I did not want so much. I never went in that deeply. Probably that is why I have not been destroyed by it, as so many have, and so many of my close friends. Casually explaining all of this darkness after all these years feels good. I have kept these secrets long enough. That is a great thing about fiction songs, and now this novel in particular. Truth can be unbridled in it far more than with nonfiction. So you write a book and you say it's fake, you can tell the truth, but, you know... It's fake, so so here we are. The Rolling Stones turned from curiosity to pure satanic devotion before their next album, which was released in November of 1967. Brian had opposed Mick's in eagerness to imitate us, but Mick believed that his dark source inspired a new Sgt. Pepper sound. Dedicated to their new lord, their Pepper ripoff, was christened their satanic majestic request. Here's another revelation for y'all. Speaking of Brian, the police and all the newspapers said he ended his own life by drowning himself in his pool. That's another cover-up story. Brian Jones is the Rolling Stones founder, was brilliant, a beautiful and exceptionally talented man, a tremendous entertainer. He played 66 instruments, some quite well, and he helped write some of their songs. Finally, after ongoing friction in the band, he left it. He died less than a month later, in the summer of 69. That was what motivated us to unlock our clues about Paul. The Beatles, the Stones, Revolution were two sides of the same movement. We were better than they, but they were all brothers, yoked together as one project. I was the Beatles' leader. Brian had been the Stones' leader. It was on July 3rd, less than an hour after hearing of his death, that we decided to reveal the clues. We would give understanding to the albums we had already sold. We wanted the whole world to know about it on the same day. We leaked the news to a Los Angeles musician on September 11th, the third anniversary of Paul's death exactly 10 weeks after Brian died. Five days later, the news reached Tim Harper, who published the story the next day in the Times D-E-L-P-H-I-C, the college paper of Drake University in Ohio. We expected hysteria, but did not get it. 24 days later, I called the lodge for American contact. They referred me to Bill Hilling, a 32-degree mason in Richmond, Indiana, who made some phone calls for us. The next day, one of his contacts called Russ Gibb, the disc jockey for WKNR-FM in Detroit. Gibb spent about an hour discussing the topic. After that October 12th broadcast, the news covered the globe. 
Everyone looked, but none saw Brian Jones' part in the unstopping of our fans' deaf ears and opening their blind eyes to hear and see Paul had died. Then came the intense media pressure, more than we were really prepared for. We, what we could say, question mark. As in this telling of a book of fiction, we could speak plain truth in our songs, but we were forced to lie when talking to the press directly. Just as I must disembowel this book. As I think of Brian, I must go through many musical memories, like when I was invited to play his little nifty alto saxophone in You Know My Name back in two years before he died. We toiled with it some more without Brian. There were two months before he passed that we finally released it on March 6, 1970, some nine months after he crossed over. It was the release of the flip side of Let It Be. Brian's death at that time became associated with my mind, with my death of our band. With that, but that is another epiphany for you. Now I will tell you how he died. Frank Thorogood was swimming with Brian and said the drowning was an accident. Frank heard a voice say, Brian is my sacrifice. He is mine. Drown him. And Frank obeyed on impulse. They were already in the pool. Frank could not stop himself. Satanism looked enticing one night as presented to me in Hyde Park when Brian Jones and Keith Anger taught me about Aleister Crawley, pictured second on our Sgt. Pepper album. Crawley is the father of modern Satanism. I united with the Beatles, Rolling Stones, and some of their best friends and many others who had joined early in 1966. Crowley is an intimate Freemason in a few lodges, not regular messianic bodies of the Anglo-American tradition, but similar, which at such high degrees include Satanism that is patterned after that used by the regular lodges. The regular Grand Lodge's oath of secrecy prevents those possessing lower degrees from being aware of the blatant Satanism at the top. It is not reasonable to imagine that such oaths were not also employed in the lodges where he excelled. Owing to such secrecy, the profane enter into Satanism without knowing where the path that leads. That, as that aspect works the same whether advancing by craft degrees through Freemasonry, ancient and primitive rites, or through mere playful independent experimentation driven by curiosity. The object for all either way is to get the person in far enough that he or she cannot get out. As Marianne Faithful became sexually involved with members of the Rolling Stones and then fell in love with Mick Jagger, she naturally followed them into Satanism, particularly into Process Church, letting that religion use her status to gain support. She willingly became their celebrity poster girl. Before telling you about satanic murders that the Beatles became unwittingly connected to, I ought to explain another song by the Rolling Stones after Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band took them all by surprise. They were full of flabbergasted. They were aware of much of it while they were still having, the time, having a time with putting the whole thing together, but were still astounded by the brilliant final product. As a response to our title song they wrote 2,000 light years from home it was representing Paul floating away from this small planet drifting off into space they were saying that they each missed him as well 
They had lonely hearts like all of us without Paul. The song starts with a line about the sun turning around with every revolution of the earth to the sun is another day. Our references, our reference to the days are symbolic. Paul is yesterday since he is gone. And because of his song, Paul is also referred to as Ruby Tuesday because when John told Mick and Brian about the stupid bloody Tuesday in which he found out that Paul died, they finally saw the bloody picture. Not that Paul died on Tuesday, he did not. It was the most miserable day when John was informed of it. Mick referred me to New Day. John and I both referred to me as just another day. Starting with the sun turning was a way to say that when we went from yesterday to a new day, the sun turning around with a graceful motion refers to the providence of grace or traded one day Paul for a new one, me, exactly as Paul had envisioned it. All right, this is chapter 38, More Satanic Murders. By now, most of you have probably heard ultra-conservatives say that rock music is all of the devil. Even not-so-conservatives say that. David Bowie says rock has always been the devil's music. Well, I do not know about that, but it does fit this chapter. Bowie goes on to say, I believe rock and roll is dangerous. I feel we're only hurdling something even darker than ourselves. Rock, in my opinion, is like all music. Some of it brings people up. Some of it drags them all down. Every song brings us closer to light or darkness, to either love or hate. Who inspires each? Satanism with the Beatles begin ignorantly enough. While they visited the, and I can't say this, Carl Plansdudian, a studio in Stockholm, Sweden, John first discussed Satanism with a miserable worker there. There is no telling if it came up before then. But according to John, as far as he remembered, that is the first time any action came from it. A man there, whose name John didn't recall, told John and Paul that their show would never come to anything globally unless the Beatles prayed to the devil for greater power to influence the whole world. The man said that the devil was the god of the world and that his power surpassed all others. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. With that in mind, that very night, October 24th, 1963, John and Paul said the words, most likely without taking them seriously enough, promising that they would each sacrifice to quench Lucifer's appetite or something along that foolish line. I heard John speak of it to Vernon E. Mosher, attributing his intimate, in, intimate death to that oath. He regrets, I said something wrong yesterday, understanding that what followed would have the most likely ha happened anyway. Fate was already for them. Now the magic began a week later, on Halloween 1963, when they returned with a triumphant entry. Craze fans made a consolable spectacle of themselves at a London airport. Ed Sullivan, Ed Sullivan, as it happened, witnessed the whole scene firsthand. He was there by fate. His plane had been delayed. He enjoyed what he saw and was sure America would enjoy experiencing it too. On November 11th, at the same hotel in New York, Brian Epstein met with Ed Sullivan to negotiate the now-famous U.S. television appearances that occurred three months later, February 1964. 
Having that coincidental timing made a big impression on all four band members, but didn't call enough attention to itself to turn them that direction at that point. Besides, they had no one to guide them back then. They knew nothing about Satanism, not really. It was just a curiosity or a game. They did not did not enter into it anything binding compact back then because no one was there to show them how. April 1965, while working on help in Twinkleman Film Studio, Paul, John, and George turned to an expert as they supposed. All that year, beginning January 29th, Paul had complained of his lethal dreams. He was dying all the time. It was the most disturbing to him. The first self-proclaimed expert was Alman Speary. When Paul, John, and George spoke of Paul's dreams, Alman gave them some lessons in dream interpretation and promised to teach them to control their dreams. He taught them some old cultic meditations he had learned from either Kenneth Anger or Vonam Mosher. Then he said it would give them new power. A week or two later, they met Mosher. He prepared them for Anger's meeting stirring up interest in Satanism and his doctrine of hate. The things that most impressed the band about Mosher was his blatant egotism and his confidence in interpreting Paul's dreams, telling him Paul is the one. Mosher predicted Paul's death, calling it a sacrifice. He even told him approximately when it would occur. Mosher asked John and Paul when and where they made such a com compact with Satan, Never, Paul said. How else can you explain all this? Mosher asked. Have you ever prayed to Satan? Yes, John said, but it didn't mean nothing. It was 15 months before the dreams began. Whew, gosh, you guys, this should really hit home for some of us, I hope. Paul then learned the pattern. It's the same pattern that afflicted many other bands. It was what always happens. It's the part of the deal. It's why Brian Jones and many others died. Paul and Brian united with Satan in mortality before crossing over to be tormented in immortality. It's the same with Led Zeppelin, The Who, and every other band that was launched by Satanic Pact. For all such groups, a death of a band member is always certain. It's the bill that must be paid to the coven. In the Beatles case, the Satanic debt was to be paid for by Paul. However, since his life was ended by an automobile accident, it was argued by many Satanist circles that his end was not valid death according to the Satanic Code, that this is the reason Mark David Chapman, who has said he loved John and shot him dead. Chapman's a self-proclaimed Satanist, fancied himself a priest working with orders to sacrifice John, making John both a chief enemy and also an immortal idol. Beatles records had messages that were too subtle for most, but Chapman was given power to hear them. Under negative influence, an evil spirit helped Chapman discern and demand from John's voice in his record singing. In Come Together, John again and again sings, Shoot Me. His me is too hard to recognize because it's followed by an immediate hand clap, but you can hear it if you know to. Even though we went went on to great success without Paul, our glory was excessively shallow to John, who all the more missed Paul for it. Very lonely without Paul, John's depression became intense. He sadly sang his year blues, I'm lonely, wanna die, 
working with me instead of Paul gave him a sense of depression. He's saying, feel so, so suicidal, even hate my rock and roll, want to die, yeah, want to die. Okay, I've never heard this before until I just read this book, but he says that in Come Together, John says, shoot me, um, but it's hard to recognize because it's followed by a hand clap, but listen. Beatles had sung, I don't care too much for money, but then appeared on Peppers looking like a million bucks. Demons told Chapman that retaliation was an order and that John Lennon should be punished for forsaking Beatle values and that John insisted on being shot. Chapman claimed Satan ordered him to do it. There's a rumor that it was the same motivation that attempted the stabbing murder of George. They say Satan inspired it. Neither Ringo nor I have such threats against us because neither of us were present for that initial exchange between Satan and the Beatles. It was a few years before I joined. We did not require being X'd out. Paul paid that bill. Slaying John and the attempt on George's life were overkills for Satan. The weird story sounds absurd coming from me who had a, no part in it. M.D.C. speaks for himself, alone in my apartment back in Honolulu. Mark David Chapman said in an interview, I would strip naked and put on Beatle records and pray to Satan to give me strength, to open himself to Satan's spirit, according to Garnet News Service interview Chapman, played our songs over and over again, and to give him Satan power. He said, I prayed for demons to enter my body and to give me power to kill, and it worked. His prayers were answered, and they always are. Another lunatic murderer who used the Beatles' music for satanic purposes was our one-time friend, the notorious Charles Manson. Besides us, Charles was a close friend to the Beach Boys, the Rolling Stones, Kenneth Anger, a Satanist guide, and the Process Church. We all knew each other well. Charles' works of satanic murder were based on White Album songs, especially from what he read into the lyrics of John's Revolution 9, George Piggies, and the My Helter Skelter. Charlie had the most exceptional read on strange things into Revolution 9. In that song, Yoko taught him to become naked as the kind of ritual, connecting him to devils who were in sync with that music. Put together from a collection of loop tapes, John and Yoko made, made Revolution 9. I never was real fond of it. Partly because they stole my idea. They knew I had been making sound collages stored on tapes ever since I joined the band in 1966. At 
a point where John screams, right. Charlie unfortunately heard the command to rise. John and Yoko clip number nine from a tape that said EMI test series number nine. After finding that part, it sounds like turn me on dead man when they played it backwards with nine as McCartney's number and recurring number that appeared to entangle John his whole life. Hearing it in reverse as Turn Me On Dead Man was enough for John to add it all over their song and to add nine to the title. The, si the song and title affected Charlie Manson, who listened for ecliptic clues. Revolution 9 led him to chapter 9 of Revelations in the Holy Bible, the last book. Charlie taught Revolution 9 was a code for Revelation 9. Revelation 9, 14, 15 has four angels. Charlie supposed it was the Fab Four. He believed that Satan himself revealed to him that our own part in world history was contained in the apocalypse. Now with this song, he accepted his Lord's order to rise and to begin the revolution of Revelation 9. Rise was written at a murder location with the blood of a victim. Charlie would tell the press, especially blacks, to rise. Ordering the blacks to rise was consistent, too, with what Charlie got from George's piggies. With Charles' version of Revolution 9 being a call for blacks to rise against the, oppression middle, the oppressing middle class whites, he saw piggies as a me melodic warning to the whites that the black uprising was Im imminent. Okay. Evidence linking murders of the Manson family came from the words pig, pigs, or piggy drawn in the victim's blood. Charlie's favorite saying came from that song, what they need is a damn good whacking. That line had been given to George by his mother. Okay, this really is... Phew. Now to my song, Helter Skelter. I had to read a review of a freak-out song by my friend, The Who. I Can See for Miles was reported to have swearing cymbals and cursing guitars and fantastically dirty emergence. Okay. Having not yet heard that Who song, I imagined a wildly thunderous, jolting song that would drive people to a riot, like in the early Beatles legends. I wanted to write one like that. I thought of that crazed mental state and related to it fast and thrust of a giant spiral slide. I had to slide down called Helter Skelter, laced with hot sexual innuendo, intention and incredible pulsation. The song would entice people out of their minds. I intended the universe to create and extend to me as the song had revealed themselves to me before. I aspired to channel for this world the nastiest, dirtiest, rawest, noisiest song ever. Helter Skelter ended up written in blood. Okay, I'm not going to read the next uh, few pages just because this podcast is getting a little longer than I intended it to get. Um, but I find it very interesting how he talks a lot about Charles Manson and how he turned every Beatles song into a, a message he was supposed to do. And that just leads me to mind control. Was Charles Manson controlled with the Beatles and like prison or like so weird? Cause he does talk a lot about Helter Skelter in his interviews. I did a whole podcast about Charles Manson and my thoughts about it. 
but this is kind of even changing my thoughts even more. It's just very interesting um, how linked Charles Manson was to the Beatles. I had no idea. But it says, um, I, okay, every song practically appeared to have special messages intended for Charlie, some to begin the radical revolution, but some of the songs gave him other messages also. In Charles' world, everything had to do with the Beatles and the Bible. He misunderstood most of it, but one point that Charlie got right was that John did generally favor the New World Order global revolution. When he wrote our revolution songs, Revolution 1, Revolution, and Revolution 9, recorded in that order, he did mean to encourage one, but not as Charles wanted it. The destruction John sang of attracted him. He ended up with a double message. On the single revolution, he played it safe politically, but in the later release, Revolution 1, he softly said in his true feelings right after singing out, as most know it, but when you talk about destruction, don't you know you can count me out in? Huh. Let's read that again. But when you talk about destruction... Don't you know that you can count me out in? John chose to kind of play it safe by leaving the in out of the printed lyrics. He hoped that his softer word entered people's subconscious without getting us into any trouble. Let's listen to that real quick. yep i played it twice he definitely said in <laughs> this is so crazy to me i just I, I, i've never got this far in this book so just these two chapters i've shared on this podcast today and i'm blown away i gotta finish this book but um let's uh, let's finish this up bro let's finish this sucker up Okay, so as this chapter goes on, he says more about Charles Manson and the connection between Charles Manson and these murders. Um, I find it very interesting because, yeah, I just find it interesting. But we come to this one part, and he says um, in this very interesting statement, there are many others in the network who support Char who supported Charlie then and whose influence continues to support him. To further the network's agenda, he is connected to social engineers with global power through affiliations with creators of the New World Order. The work is coordinated by the same keen players at the top, but through many lesser fractions throughout the world. As one such fraction is the Weathermen. With the support of that global network, the group made a national impact in the States. They got their name from a paper they distributed in the S. DS detailing their faction factions position. The paper was named after the line from Dylan's Submetranean Homesick Blues. It was called You Don't Need a Weatherman to Know Which Way the Wind Blows. Later their name became Weather Underground Organization W U O but are still the Weathermen or Weathermen. Under the leadership of Bear, Bill Ayers and Jeff Jones, this group bombed the Pentagon and other buildings, especially of the U.S. federal government, but other targets as well. 
They wanted to destroy the United States. On one occasion, the bombing was merely to break Timothy Leary out of prison. The weathermen, like Charles Manson, in, in, intended to destroy the United States through violence and had similar enough thinking that they supported each other. As Bill Ayer's wife, Bernadine Dorn, has explained it, after referring to the Manson murders, the weathermen dig Charles Manson. Weatherman bombings targeted buildings more than people, but also killed. In an interview printed on September 10, 2001, the day before the 9-11 attacks in New York and elsewhere, Ayers said, I didn't regret setting bombs, and I feel we didn't do enough. Now, however, Ayers and Jones, rather than killing, have better methods that changed America. Ayers and Barack Obama mentor... The one million stimulus package was written with help from Jeff Jones. The weathermen have top-level connections. And that's the end of that chapter. The next chapter is called Hey Bulldog, but we're not going to keep getting into this book because it gets pretty deep, as you can see. I just wanted to introduce to you the one and only Billy Shears. William Shears Campbell, Billy Shears, is said to have been listed in the records of English citizens until 1966, but his name disappeared from the records that year. A Facebook page under the name William Shears Campbell, a.k.a. Billy Shears, declares Billy Shears, also known as William Campbell, born November 15, 1943, is most commonly known for replacing Paul McCartney after his death in 1966. He remains to be the re recent Paul McCarthy and is said to be more talented, refined, and down-to-earth than the first. William Campbell Shears was born into an underprivileged family of, of 10 on November 15, 1943, in Liverpool. His parents raised him along with his seven brothers and sisters, and he got little education. It wasn't until he was discovered by the Beatles and realized his incredible musical talent that he was able to do anything with his life. That is by Ringo Starr. That song is called I Am the Greatest. They sure love giving us clues, don't they?
And uh, I'm not going to be cut now because it's uh, 1239 uh, at night and there's nobody standing by to cut the switch. But I'm going to tell you the truth. These kids at Indiana University have mentioned something very strange about Paul. And I am going to give you the things that they have mentioned. And I hope that you will remember that I told you first because you're going to hear about this. This is making the wire services. This is making all the local radio newscasts across the country. And I know what they're talking about. It seems that uh, there's something strange that happened to the Beatle Paul. Um, if you will look at the Sgt. Pepper's album, the first strange thing you'll notice is that on the cover, and this may or may not be true, there's a hand over his head, somebody's right hand. And this is uh, nothing spectacular. But then you will notice, if you look to the right-hand side, there is the WMCA, which is our competition in those days. It's not now, but it was then. Um, welcomes uh, the Beatles. WMCA, good guys, welcome the Beatles, right? On the other side of the uh, Sgt. Pepper album. Okay. In the right hand of that doll is a car. The theory is that Paul the Beatle was killed or will be killed in a sports car. A white, perhaps, Corvette or something like that. I don't know what it is. But that's the doll on the front of the Sgt. Pepper's album. On the grave on the front of the Sgt. Pepper's album, there is a four-string bass, which is the instrument that Paul plays. That's on the grave. It's a left-hand bass. And that is there. I want you to notice in the Magical Mystery Tour album, the numbers that really come out, if you really get very, very high and look at the front of the album, on some, uh, you know, like, you know, mind-bending drug, there are numbers in the title of the album. I want you also to look at the inside pictures. The walrus is a pagan symbol of death. And the walrus is holding his right hand above Paul's head. Now, what does this mean? I want you also to notice in the Beatles albums, if you will take Strawberry Fields Forever and play it at 45 RPM, take the LP and play it at 45 you will distinctly hear the words, I buried Paul, if you play it very high. If you take I am the walrus, you will hear services for Billy. You will hear, is he really dead? And now I'm going to give you the very final thing, as I may well end my radio career. And I sure as hell hope I'm doing it on the top station in New York. And I am. If you will listen very carefully to Revolution Number 9, Take it and play it on a two-track machine after you've recorded it on a four-track machine. Play it backwards, and you will hear some very strange things. You will hear things like, is he dead? You will hear some very unusual things about Paul the Beatle. And after ten years in broadcasting, I have never felt so, so sure of a thing as I feel right now but that there is something strange going on with the Beatles and something particularly strange with reference to Paul. Why is he in a black suit with bare feet on the cover of Abbey Road? Do you know that's what they bury people in in England? For instance, in Revolution Number 9, you can hear the sound of flames. You can hear crackling. You can hear a car crash. You can hear distinctly, let me out. And the most shocking thing of all is... You can hear, turn me on, dead man, if you happen to play it backwards. Now, folks, I have nothing to lose by telling you this. I'm sorry for the telephone girl. There's only one girl on the switchboard tonight at ABC, and I feel sorry for her. But I had to say this, 
because my voice in ABC will be silenced within two weeks. But if you will listen to these songs, you will hear what I said. And if you listen to the rest of the songs, you will hear even more. Well, as always, thank you for listening to my episode of, of what, where'd Paul go? Just kidding. That's not what we're calling it. We're going to call it Waking Up to Billy Shears, the Unspoken Beetle. Maybe. We'll see. Anyways, love you guys. Thanks for listening. Have a great Memorial Weekend. Dear Jesus, thank you for everything you do. Thank you for the voice you give us. Thank you for the time we're in. I just pray, Lord, that people remember that no matter what the world may look like, you are God, you are in control, and we have nothing to fear. Thank you for those who have gone before us as we remember them this weekend. In Jesus' holy name we pray and let all things be revealed. Amen.